Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 3rd, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm the editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Daily Journal. I'm very excited to welcome you to this edition of the Weekly Appellate Report. Your source, each Friday, for the appellate week that was, featuring commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. Three great guests join me this week to chat about three important appellate issues. I'll first speak with Justice Anthony Klein, the first appellate district's presiding justice, to get his reaction to a momentous rule change announced Wednesday from the California Supreme Court, which ends the century-long practice of intermediate appellate opinions being automatically depublished upon their being reviewed by the state high court. Naturally, Justice Klein is pleased that the new rule makes it less likely his thoroughly reasoned opinions will be consigned to the ether of depublication, but he, like a number of attorneys who were quoted in our newspaper's coverage of this story, thinks the rule didn't go far enough and that unpublished opinions in the state should largely be done away with altogether. We'll next hear from William Woods of the L.A. County District Attorney's Office. He'll speak about last week's ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, a remand disapproving of a racially motivated jury selection, which restated the constitutional rule first laid out by the country's high court 30 years ago in Batson v. Kentucky. Mr. Woods works in the district attorney's training department and teaches deputies how to stay within the constitutional boundaries laid out by Batson, and he'll let us know if and how this ruling will impact deputies in his office and California practitioners generally. Finally, I'll chat with Donald Falk of Mayor Brown to hear his thoughts on an important California Supreme Court case that heard its arguments yesterday. The issue here deals with the limits of personal jurisdiction in a case where out-of-state plaintiffs are suing an out-of-state drug manufacturer in California court. The Court of Appeal here held that California courts could exercise specific personal jurisdiction over the drug maker, Bristol-Myers Squibb. We'll hear why Mr. Falk thinks they cannot. But before hearing from our guests, let me first remind you that CLE credit is available for you having listened to this program. Just look for the link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, we'll get to my conversation with Justice Anthony Klein. We're very honored to welcome Justice Anthony Klein to the program now. Justice Klein is the presiding justice of the First District Court of Appeal, and he has discharged his role since 1982. Justice Klein, I understand the issue that we're going to be talking about presently is is very near and dear to your heart. Uh, First, let me welcome you to the program. Good to have you. Good to be here. So we're discussing a decision made on Wednesday by the California Supreme Court to abolish a very long-held practice of automatically depublishing intermediate appellate rulings, such as the ones that you pen. You mentioned to me this has been a campaign you've been pushing and been a part of for a long time now. Tell me about that. Well, there were efforts back in the 1980s, um, initially under uh, Rose Byrd uh, and later under um, uh, Chief Justice Lucas, to eliminate the automatic depublication rule. That is the rule that a court of appeal opinion is automatically depublished upon a grant by the Supreme Court of a petition for review. Um, the, the Byrd Court, uh, uh, or the Chief Justice Byrd had the clerk of the court send the uh, Academy, uh, the California Academy of Appellate Lawyers and others who had sought that reform in writing a brief letter rejecting the idea on the ground that it would confuse lawyers, basically. The Academy of Appellate Lawyers, again, made the same pitch under Chief Justice Lucas, various appellate districts, the 5th District, the 3rd District, my own district here, the 1st, also uh, wrote Chief Justice Lucas, and Chief Justice Lucas never even responded. There was never even a response to these requests to consider 
even consider uh, eliminating uh, automatic depublication. This current reform that the present Chief Justice and the Supreme Court have, have, have now adopted was initiated somewhat surprisingly by the Chief Justice herself. Uh, and I think she deserves enormous appreciation for doing that. It was imaginative and it was real leadership. Now, I mean, there were a number of, of lawyers and judges, including myself, that have been urging her to do that. And the only other thing I would add to this, I think that this brings California in line with most, almost every other state. I, New Mexico and Arizona may have rules that are similar to the one our Supreme Court just abandoned. I'm not sure about that. But this idea of automatic depublication is not a, a policy of, of any federal or overwhelming majority of state appellate courts, and it's a positive step. My view, however, and I think the view of a lot of people that are interested in this issue of depublication, is that it's just a step in the right direction, uh, but it only corrects a relatively small part of the problem. The, the much greater part of the problem is summary or selective depublication, regardless whether a petition for, for review um, has been uh, filed or granted. Um, most of the... Of the um, criticism of depublication has focused on this uh, broader power of, of depublication that our Supreme Court still has retained. And in the, in the 1980s, uh, depublication was a very controversial issue because of the extent of depublication by the California Supreme Court uh, under the Byrd Court. Uh, the Byrd Court, in the six years that, that Rose Byrd was Chief Justice, California Supreme Court depublished on average, I believe, close to 70 opinions a year. Under the Lucas Court, it, it dramatically increased uh, to 170 a year were being depublished. In other words, the Lucas Court was annually depublishing more opinions uh, than it issued. And this depublication practice is a way of surreptitiously making law that is very pernicious and can be misused for political purposes and is unique to California. Tell me a little bit more about that. You say starting July 1st, when this rule change takes effect, intermediate appellate opinions will no longer be automatically depublished when they're granted review by the high court, but the high court still retains the power to selectively depublish any other intermediate opinion. Is that fair? That's right. Say? It's a little bit more complicated than that. Yes, the, the Supreme Court has just now, under the new policy, a court of appeal opinion, which the Supreme Court has agreed to review, will not be automatically published ordinarily and will remain citable. But it can only be, until the Supreme Court has ruled, it has no precedential effect. Uh, it's only, it's persuasive force, however, uh, can be uh, cited and relied upon by other uh, appellate courts and by trial courts. This has nothing to do, however, with the separate rule of court that authorizes the Supreme Court to depublish any opinion, regardless whether there's a petition for review. And that is, I think, the subject of the strongest criticism. In other words, as positive a move as this has been, I see it only as a step in the right direction, but avoiding the, the much more serious problem. Okay, why do you think the courts should go further and give up the practice of selectively? Well, well, well I, 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 I basically believe that the 
elimination of opinions without explanation, which no other appellate court in the United States or anywhere in the world, so far as I know, does, is fundamentally inimical to the judicial process, which is reasoned decision-making. And as uh, Bernard Witkin, Roger Trainer, uh, many other uh, uh, prominent lawyers and, and appellate judges have pointed out, the unexplained elimination of opinions, which has the effect of rendering other opinions pres presidential. I mean, this is a complicated process and I'm not sure I can deal with it within the time that we have to talk about this. But the ability to eliminate uh, an opinion on a new issue or an opinion that, that uh, conflicts with another opinion without any explanation whatsoever. Uh, the court can do this even without, on its own motion without notice. Now, usually that doesn't happen. Usually there's a request uh, for depublication. The depublication process that I'm now talking about, which I refer to as selective depublication, is very opaque. The internal operating rules of the Supreme Court say nothing about it. Nobody knows how these decisions are made. Uh, under the rules of court, any person, quote, any person, not the parties to a case, but any person, you don't even need to be a lawyer, can ask the Supreme Court to depublish an opinion. And there is no notice to anybody of that request except the parties to the case and, the, and the, the rendering court, the court that issued the opinion. Now, there are large institutions, insurance companies, large law firms with, with great resources, monitor appellate opinions, and are increasingly asking the Supreme Court to depublish opinions uh, that are adverse to their interests or to publish opinions that the Court of Appeal didn't uh, certify for publication and th there is no public notice of any of this. Moreover, the Supreme Court, as I say, can do this on its own motion, in which case there's no notice to anybody. Now, anybody has the, any person has the, the right to oppose a request for depublication, but <laughs> very, very few people even uh, are on notice of a request to depublish. In other words, we have an underground, an opaque, underground or virtually underground process for depublishing opinions that have been certified for publication by the Court of Appeal uh, that very few people are alert to. Now, the reason that the Lucas Court was depublishing uh, well over 100 opinions a year was that it was undoing the, the, the case law that was made by the predecessor Supreme Court, the Rose Byrd Court. I mean, there was a political aspect to the use of depublication, and studies have been done of that, of that subject. Uh, Professor Ullman at, at, at Santa Clara Law School wrote an article in the mid-'80s studying the opinions uh, of the Byrd Court and the Lucas Court that were uh, uh, depublished, and he saw, you know, political motivations in this. Now, the present Supreme Court is not depublishing anywhere near as much as the as the Byrd Court and the Lucas Court. I think uh, in recent years, the the highest number of cases they depublished, and I think it was three or four years ago, was 31, uh, and it's been lower since then. But the reasons that I think the Supreme Court should reconsider selective depublication is not because there's so much of it going on, 
but because this court, for the first time, seems to be aware of the of the mischief that depublication can cause, uh, it's not as heavily invested in this. The, the, the three new Brown appointees, all of whom really practiced in the federal system, uh, have no experience with depublication and uh, are kind of, I think, after discussing it with them, we're kind of mystified by the whole thing. So I think there's an openness. And the second and more important reason I think it ought to be reconsidered, uh, reconsidered is because what, of what's happening in this country. What, if you're paying, in, in, with respect to state courts elsewhere in the United States, state courts are being politicized. And that's happening not just through judicial elections, but through state budget processes and so forth, which is happening now in Kansas and Wisconsin and, and uh, other states uh, in which state, uh, the state judiciaries were not highly politicized. State courts are being politicized in this nation. This has not happened, in my opinion, in California, at least not yet, but it could happen. And if we have in the future a, 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 a politically engaged Supreme Court subject to uh, much greater political pressures than has historically been the case here, then depub- the depublication practice is a convenient way to brush controversial or politically charged cases under the rug without explanation. It, it has a, po- a potential political use. This is one of the points that Professor Ullman made in his article in the Santa Clara County, uh, I believe it was in the Loyola Law Review, I'm not sure. So those are the reasons that, that I and others are going to urge the Supreme Court to go further uh, than they, they did uh, this week. That's a policy consideration with, with some significant breadth that you paint. I'd like to ask you a, a bit about a, a more narrow, personal one. I'd be curious to know from your vantage point, a unique one as a jurist, uh, if the circumstance arises where you write an opinion, you take the time to reason it out and write it out, and then the, the Supreme Court, either because it grants review or just selectively, um, ends up depublishing the opinion. I assume that's happened to you, and what do you feel when that, when that happens? Uh, well, I don't like it. Either does any other appellate judge. There is something about, look, it's, it's one thing to be reversed by the Supreme Court in an opinion uh, in which they explain their reasons. And, and you know, I've been a, an appellate judge for almost 35 years, and that's happened to me. And, you know, I don't like that either, but I can live with that. I mean, that's, you, you know, you, that's reasonable. You, you are told why your view is being rejected. But sure. to do that peremptorily, without any explanation, uh, is, is an affront not simply to the judge whose opinion is depublished, but to the system. What, what differentiates the two political branches from the judiciary is that our decision-making has to be explained in writing. It has to be reasoned. And there's something very, very frustrating this. Now, this is entirely apart from the other problem that this depublication has consequences. It, it, it eliminates a, a conflict between intermediate appellate courts that, that may raise really important policy issues that Supreme Court should address in a reasoned way, rather than just depublishing an opinion that a majority of members of the Supreme Court reach a result the court doesn't like. Look, the rules of court state that depublication of an opinion does not express an opinion of the Supreme Court. Now, nobody believes that. That's a myth. Uh, and, and appellate judges have said that in opinions. The, the rule of court 
you know, stating that depublication doesn't express an opinion of the Supreme Court is ridiculous. Of course it does. Uh, and everybody knows that. Um, and so it's a charade. There's something dishonest and unreasoned, certainly, about the depublication policy that the Supreme Court has not abandoned yet. Now, maybe setting aside for just a second the problem of this rule change not going far enough, in your opinion, do you think that the, the rule change that, that will take effect in July, do you think there's any pitfalls specifically related to that? I, I know we had previous guests on the podcast mention that there could be an instance, say, where a court of appeals opinion is granted review, but it remains published now and is relied upon by attorneys in a trial court, and the trial court rules a certain way based on that opinion, but then the California Supreme Court rules differently than that underlying trial court ruling would seem to be a bit vulnerable um, as a result. Uh, do you make anything of, of that pitfall, or are there any other ones that could arise? Well, I, I, don't think, I don't think that is a pitfall. That's what happens in every other state in the United States, and that's what happens in the federal courts. I mean, the Court of Appeal opinion, if the U.S. Supreme Court reverses the Ninth Circuit, it doesn't depublish their opinion. In fact, the availability, the citability and availability, the Ninth Circuit opinion is no longer precedential, but it's still citable. Uh, and it explains, you know, if you can see what the overruled opinion was saying, you can better understand what the Supreme Court meant. And there may be issues uh, in the intermediate court uh, opinions that the Supreme Court doesn't differ with. And, and, and it can say in its opinion, you know, that we, we, we have no problem with issues, you know, two, three and four uh, that the Court of Appeal discussed. It's only the first issue that we're reversing. So it, it makes things easier for the Supreme Court. But it also provides the legal profession with a better understanding of what the Supreme Court opinion means and its consequences. It's getting a different view of the court. Now it's a subordinate court and it's no longer precedential, but it helps understanding of the process. Okay, then maybe one last question here. Clearly, you're of the opinion that the California Supreme Court still has some more work to do if it would like the depublication policies to be more open and be less conducive to any potential insidious political machinations. Do you predict that there could be an additional change in the future to the selective depublication uh, rule that is still in effect? Well, I don't want to predict what the Supreme Court will do, but I am willing to predict that judges, and I'm one of them, uh, and appellate lawyers are going to uh, renew their interest. Uh, there is a huge body of literature critical of selective depublication. There is no major figure in the legal community of this state who supports selective depublication. The only person who ever defended it in writing was Joseph Grodin when he was a member of the Supreme Court in an article in the California Law Review, I think in 1984. Uh, Justice Grodin has since repudiated his own support uh, and is now indicated in his response to the Supreme Court's request for comments on, on the automatic depublication rule that he no longer believes, uh, he's no longer willing to defend even selective depublication. As I say, there is no support in the legal community of this state for selective depublication, and there is a huge body of critical literature, including Bernard Wicken's manual on appellate practice, 
which urges getting rid of it because it's a way of surreptitiously uh, uh, changing the law. Uh, Roger Trainer, uh, maybe the most eminent uh, chief justice we've ever had, also had serious problems and, and, and did write an article, I believe, in the Chicago Law Review in the, in the 1950s, uh, critical of, of, of depublication, which was then being proposed and which he was unwilling to do. So th- th- this move uh, this week by the California Supreme Court will, I'm sure, resurrect interest in this issue within the legal community at large. And I believe that um, there are going to be efforts now. I mean, the Supreme Court has indicated that it's open. Unlike the Byrd Court, unlike the Lucas Court, the, the, uh, the present court and the present Chief Justice have indicated an interest in reconsidering depublication. And I think the legal community is going to respond to that by proposing, making proposals uh, to eliminate selective depublication, something no other court does. Well, so it sounds like notwithstanding this rule change set to take effect, the, the fight over depublication will continue. Justice Anthony Klein, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Once more, that was Justice Anthony Klein of the 1st Appellate District weighing in on Wednesday's rule change to automatic depublication. Next up, my conversation with William Woods. Welcoming in now Assistant Head Deputy District Attorney William Woods. He's a part of the training division at the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. Mr. Woods, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, Yeah, sure. Now, the foundation for our discussion here is a ruling from last week out of the U.S. Supreme Court in Foster v. Chapman. There, a Georgia state conviction was remanded where an African-American defendant was convicted by an all-white jury after the prosecutor in the case struck jurors based on, as um, some ex- extensive and, and damning notes reveal, um, basis on the basis solely of race. So that, of course, is unconstitutional as determined by the U.S. Supreme Court in Batson versus Kentucky, and also by the California Supreme Court in the case of People versus Wheeler. So first, I'd, I'd like to have you sort of set up the context here and take me through those two foundational cases. I believe the, the California Supreme Court case came down first. Is that correct? That's right. Wheeler was decided uh, in 1978. So we were, California, in the forefront, obviously, of looking at this particular issue of uh, invidious jury selection issues. And uh, so in 78, um, not knowing exactly, I assume, whether the U.S. Constitution would reach there, the California Supreme Court made the decision under the right to trial by jury in the California Constitution uh, and said, this is, um, you know, this is the uh, thing that you're not allowed to do, uh, which basically is, you know, what they called group bias, which is that a lawyer in selecting a jury, you know, looks at the in uh, the jurors and sees individuals as a group. So all African-American jurors think this way, all Hispanic jurors think this way, all women think this way, as opposed to looking at the jurors as individuals. So a African-American man who, you know, does whatever it is for a living. Um, and then it really, you know, kind of surprising if you think about it, it wasn't until 1986, so, you know, eight years after California, that the United States Supreme Court finally, as, as far as criminal 
cases was concerned, issued the Batson decision. And of course, since they were the United States Supreme Court, they will have you know, found the decision in the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and basically, in, in many ways, kind of adopted California's idea that what we were prohibiting here is uh, group bias decisions, that you look at an individual as a member of a group, not as an individual. Okay, now, this might seem like a bit of an obvious question, but but tell me what's so important about this constitutional rule. There, there are, as we'll get to, many permissible reasons for an attorney to dismiss a juror, and some of them deal with the potential sympathy that juror could have with a defendant, for instance. For example, if a jury, say, has members of his family who had run-ins with the law, like the defendant, he can be stricken. If a juror is poor and the defendant is as well, uh, that's okay. And if, uh, say, a juror is elderly and a defendant is elderly, they can be stricken based simply on those reasons. So why is it not okay for a prosecutor to say, well, they're the same race, so that fact alone may well cause a measure of sympathy to exist, and so I'll I'll go ahead and use a peremptory challenge. Well, you know, one thing, just as a note, that's always important to remember is that um, invidious jury selection is a two-way street. Uh, It's both the defense and the prosecutors who, you know, could engage in that. But, you know, the goal, obviously, is to uphold the... um, kind of the constitutional ideals of selecting individuals based uh, on their individuality, not by making, you know, some kind of um, generalizations like all women will think this way. Uh, And so, or, you know, all white men will think this way. So that what you're basically really trying to achieve is an individual inquiry into a particular juror so that the the reason for that juror's dismissal is one of those things like for example um you know the the juror whose uh, you know son had been charged with uh, murder uh and you know obviously you know probably would be kind of uncomfortable sitting in a courtroom um as a juror on a murder trial prosecuted by maybe the same agency that had, you know, sentenced their their son, right? So there's a mm-hmm. obvious kind of conflict that, you know, somebody would say, well, you know, that person probably shouldn't be there. Okay, now you're in the training division in your office, so the responsibility falls to you to train deputies in a number of areas, I'm sure, but one of them is to stay within the boundaries set up by the Batson-Wheeler Doctrine. Tell me about how you do that, what the process is like. Well, it, uh, you know, basically what, the kind of two factors, so, you know, one, we talk about jury selection, right, just the whole process of how you select a jury, who, you know, who you're looking for in terms of a, a you know, a prosecutor's juror, right, the individual sure. who maybe would be our, our more favorable juror. Um, so there's that kind of element. And then what um, I do is I spend time talking, first of all, um, about actually the historical antecedents and the presentations that I do. I actually kind of try to explain it. I go back and um, believe it or not, I, you know, I was a history teacher before I became a lawyer, so it's probably where this comes from. But uh, I start uh, back uh, with the statistics on how many Native Americans are left in the United States uh, since contact. Uh, you know, there were, there were millions of them here, and then by the time we get to today, they've they pretty much disappeared. The population number is astronomically dropped. Um, and, and basically, I, I trace through, um, you know, through Stonewall, actually, talking about how all these various and disparate groups 
um, have been characterized and discriminated against uh, and in our society, right? Women didn't get the right to vote until 1919. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about. Um, And so I start them back there, and I say, look, these are things our country did wrong for a very long time. And now, today, our goal is... Obviously, we can't make up for everything we did wrong, but our goal is to try and moving forward to as best as we possibly can to be fair, right, to give everybody a fair shot and to look at people as individuals. And then I talk a little bit about, you know, the procedures, right, how the Wheeler Challenger, Wheeler Batson challenges are raised, uh, what they need to do to protect the record, you know, to explain why they dismissed a particular juror. Uh, I talk a little bit with them about, you know, what are the reasons, right? And, uh, you know, there are like, um, for example, you man- mentioned uh, age, right? Where, um, gee whiz, if the defendant was elderly and the juror was elderly, um, that would be a reason to dismiss the juror. And that was true and permissible in California until January of 2016. The legislature amended the jury selection statute, and now age is not an appropriate reason to dismiss a juror. So that one goes away now, right? So we can't say, oh, that juror's too young. Now, sure. there are other, you know, other reasons could be come up, but part of it is just kind of knowing um, what's permissible and what's not. I mean, I you know, one of the, I have in my typical presentations, I usually say something like, so, um, you know, what about uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant blue-eyed males, which describes me, by the way. And, um, and yeah, that's, that is a protected group. You can't just say, gee, all the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males with blue eyes must think this way. Right. You have to base it on individuality. Um, and that's kind of I, that's the theme I keep pressing with them is look at the individual juror, drop the you know stereotypes. Sure. OK, you touched on it for a, for a second there. Could you lay out just for me quickly the, the nuts and bolts of the Batson Wheeler challenge? So say a jury, a juror is stricken and then I believe um, the, the challenge would prompt a, a three step right. analysis. Yeah. So what happens is uh, the jurors dismissed uh, the. Uh, moving party uh, objects. They then um, typically um, approach the bench, right, because we're not going to do this where the jury <laughs> hears sure. what's going on. Uh, or they may already be at the bench doing, you know, the jury dismissals. And um, so the first step is for the proponent to raise an inference of discrimination, right? And typically, you know, that's the kind of thing of, um, Gee whiz, there's you know no reason to have dismissed this Hispanic juror, you know whatever the reasons might be. Mm-hmm. All they need to raise is what the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, has said is an inference of discrimination, which an inference isn't very much, right? That's sure. you know I'm never exactly sure what it is, but I always tell people it's pretty much nothing. Sure. Um, and once the inference is raised, the prima facie case is raised, the trial court judge then turns to the individual who dismissed the juror and says, so why did you get rid of that person? Uh, They then offer their explanation as to what it was that made them think this was not an appropriate juror for them. And then the trial court then decides, you know, yeah, that, you know, that's fine. I agree with you. uh, Or, you know, decides no, um, that, you know, that juror should not have been dismissed. And then there are various remedies the court has at its disposal. 
And now you also touched on this a bit. Uh, Batson Wheeler deals with the groups being protected on the basis of their race from being stricken, but there's other groups as well that are protected. You mentioned one now in California is people being judged based solely on their age. It sounds like gender is also a protected group. Are there, Gen- are there other gender ones? Gender is protected. Sexual orientation is protected okay. in California. Um, so yeah, it's... Um, yeah, it's a wide-ranging group, right? I mean, if, <laughs> in a certain way, you almost think of like everybody's protected, which <laughs> means you really have to look at them as an individual, right? Sure. You've got to look at that particular person and say, gee, does this person, based on what they've told me, uh, say, you know, they shouldn't be here for me? Right. Okay, are there any other potentially cognizable groups that are, are not protected at the moment under um, these doctrines? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's funny. Uh, there's actually a, um, a, a federal case that says, I think it's a federal case, that says that uh, people who are obese are not protected. I guess you could say, gee whiz, I don't want the person, they, they weigh too much, <laughs> which I find to be kind of strange yeah, <laughs> why you would do that. Weird. I'm not sure, but... <laughs> So, I, um, yeah, I mean, they're probably um, still, you know, for example, um, in California, there's a, a case that said uh, that they objected and they went up there and they said, well, the prosecutors are uh, dismissing people of color, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the judge said, no, you know, I'm forget this, let's move on. And on appeal, the court said, well, that's not a cognizable group. We don't really know who you mean by people of color, okay. right? So, I mean, you basically do kind of have to delineate, um, you know, this particular person. Religion is a kind of a funny category because you, you couldn't say, gee, I don't want uh, Catholics, right? Because Catholics are bad for whatever, you know, stereotypic reason you've created in your mind. Um, but at the same time, you could, um, you know, some jurors, for example, their religious beliefs uh, are that they can't judge someone, right? That's against their religion to do that. Well, that's not a good juror, right? And you're dismissing them based on their religious belief, right? Sure. But it's it interfaces into their ability to judge, right? So that's a kind of an odd one, the religious one. And you don't see that very often because, of course, it doesn't, um, you know, Typically, in questioning jurors, religion is not something that comes up very often. Okay. Most often in death penalty cases, obviously. Right. Then let's get into Foster versus Chapman for just a second, the U.S. Supreme Court case that mm-hmm. I believe was filed last Monday. Um, could you just briefly sum up what the court held here and then whether or not this reexamination of the contours of the, the Batson doctrine will have any particular effect on practitioners, perhaps here in California? It's, you know, it's one of those kind of um, cases that um, um, a a colleague uh, sent me a note and he said, uh, gee, looking at this case, is there anything we really need to know about? And I wrote back and said, gee, I don't really think so. Um, The law is pretty established. There's There's nothing new that comes out of it as far as the legal process is concerned. The one thing that is a little different is that, um, now, this was 1986. This is literally, they tried that case months after Batson was decided. So we are right. dealing with something that's 30 years old, a 30-year-old conviction. Um, the uh, prosecutors, well, <laughs> to frame it this way, there were notes in the prosecutor's file 
which um, Chief Justice Roberts, you know, characterizes as just being, you know, something to the effect of kind of horrible. In um, they, for example, had green-lighted all the African American jurors' names. There was another list where they'd written, you know, black next to the names of all those jurors. Um, so, you know, it's pretty obvious that race was a component that there was definitely being considered. The interesting note is if you read Justice Thomas's dissent, um, he points out that the prosecutors denied that they had made those notes, and the basis for the notes being into the record comes from an investigator who no longer works for the DA's office who said, yeah, I don't know exactly who made those notes. <laughs> so I, it's a little confusing. The notes are obviously are in, incredibly troubling, and I think obviously that's what um, the Georgia court got wrong uh, and the Supreme Court got right in saying, hey, look, obviously race was definitely playing the, the major part in what was happening uh, as far as those jurors were concerned. Uh, though the one thing that I've seen out of that is that um, one of the things that we train our deputies to do is to uh, note in their jury notes uh, the racial makeup of the jury. In other words, so they you know maybe put age for Hispanic or however they do their notes. Um, and the reason we do that is because later on appeal, um, we want to be able to know what was going on, who people thought that juror was and what was happening. And the California Supreme Court has, in a case called People versus Lennox, uh, has said um, that that's what we should be doing. We should be noting this kind of information because it assists in later review. So one of the things I want to make sure people understand is that they, you know, include a disclaimer that says, hey, the reason I'm putting this in here is not invidious, but simply to aid in later analysis. And a lot of times these cases are being litigated um, much, much later, you know, in some habeas right. corpus proceeding or something. And I've seen um, a, one case in which a prosecutor was uh, testifying about the dismissal of one juror 11 years before. And as I often say to our our deputies, if if you don't have the notes, you are never going to remember, right? And <laughs> in imagine. point of fact, there are cases where they will say, well, the prosecutor had no memory of why he got rid of that juror, right? right. Um, and so, I mean, the notes do become important because that does, it, it provides at least some assistance in helping them recall, oh yeah, okay, you know, this person was this or that. It also helps sometimes with some of the confusion that happens. You know, I've always thought of the Wheeler-Batson process as being don't think of a pink elephant. Okay. So we say to people, don't think about race. And then we're up there, the two lawyers and the judge, talking about race, right? And you do find these ones where you can see them in the appellate opinions where they've gone up there. Um, and they said, well, they're kicking Hispanics. And the prosecutor says, well, that person's not Hispanic. And my favorite one is uh, where the judge says, yeah, sh she's not Hispanic. You don't become Hispanic by getting married to a Hispanic. And, and the court said, uh, the appellate court said, yeah, that's right. You don't get it that way. Well, there's where the notes would play into that picture, right? Sure. What, what did I think it was? What did, every, you know, everybody, and I've had people, you know, 
told me, you know, I didn't, I didn't even think that person was fill in the blank. And of course, obviously, we don't turn around to the juror and say, could you tell us, you know, how you identify, right? Um, So, I mean, and, you know, California, (laughs) we are such a fabulous combination here that, um, you know, you, you look, look at the jury panels and they they just they mirror our communities right Uh, so it's a wide ranging group of people sure that sort of leads me to my my next question is uh, the communities and and the jury panels presumably sat in these preceding cases in the the foster versus chapman case and the batson versus kentucky case these are communities where we're probably talking about a bit of racial dichotomy there's probably a fair amount of white folks and a fair amount of african-americans on these panels, but like you suggest, jury panels in Los Angeles County, I imagine, are tremendously more diverse with people from all sorts of backgrounds. So is sort of the logic undergirding the Batson-Wheeler doctrine sort of less compelling in, in present-day Southern California? Well, it, you know, it, it, in first blush, you might say yes, right, because just the, the nature. But I mean, I think it's it's still there. I mean, one of um, one of the things that I... Um, tell our deputies is, you know, this this goes both ways, and you should be keeping track of who the defense is kicking, because, right. uh, you know, I, I, I think anecdotally, at least, that there is a, um, a stereotype that Asian Pacific uh, Americans are pro-law enforcement, and we see a pattern of Asian Pacific jurors being dismissed by the defense, which is just as invidious as anything else. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's still there. I think the likelihood, um, you know, that you're going, you you definitely are not going to get the 1986 Georgia jury in Los Angeles County, right? I mean, that's just not a reality that's going to happen. Um, but... I think it's still there. I think we still need to emphasize, you know, we have a, here's that history teacher again, we have a long history of discrimination, and we have obviously not gotten past that. Uh, It still lives with us, and, and, you know, we need to work to try and, you know, ensure that we're, you know, we're giving the defendant a fair trial by a fair, panel as close as we can get it of members of our community it's it's not a jury that looks exactly like you it's a jury that represents the community of los angeles county right i mean that's who we're looking for sure sort of jumping off that point where you mentioned that we do our best and that racial discrimination to some extent still exists in society i might ask whether the the batson wheeler doctrine and the three-step process to address a challenge is is a genuine filter of all racially invidious motivations can can you really get inside the head of an attorney who's striking a juror if as you mentioned the third step of the the analysis is a that that attorney providing a permissible reason and and as you say and uh, you also mentioned this i believe in a state bar article from a few years back some of those permissible reasons can be relatively uh, trivial to uh, for lack of a, a hunch <laughs> yeah a my hunch. favorite <laughs> so i mean is this more of a dance a, a judicial theater than anything else to- it's you know, I've I've always said I the the problem with Wheeler Batson is I don't believe we can look into the soul of the lawyer and know that they're up to no good, right? The the true sociopath is going to be able to pull this off. Um, so, you know, I, I I think that that's you're right. That's the problem. Uh, can we truly tell? Um, and that's 
and I, and I don't know that we can, right? I mean, I think one of the things that the court opinions talk about is that on appeal, we we defer to the trial court judge. The trial court judge was actually there, right? They saw the jury members. They saw the lawyers. In many cases, for example, with prosecutors and with public defenders, um, they, they know that individual's reputation. They may have uh, had them in their courtroom for you know, a period of time, right? This may not be the first trial they've done with them. Um, and so they are in a pretty good position to be able to judge um, you know, the the character of the individual, right? It, it, does this strike me as being the type of thing that, you know, this is a legitimate reason? Um, but I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's why, um, I, th- I think it's Justice Breyer, I think, who's who's proposed just doing away with preemptory challenges, right? Just saying, you know, let's let's get rid of it and we'll just, you know, dismiss jurors for cause uh, and that would solve the problem. I I, I would think that um, uh, our colleagues in the defense would be very worried about that prospect of not being able to, you know, go through a jury and look and get rid of those jurors that they're concerned about. I certainly, from a prosecutor's side, would be concerned about it as well. But, I mean, ultimately, I suppose if you, quote, truly wanted to, you know, solve it, that would be the way to do it. I don't like that as an idea, but because that would, that would be it. It would prolong uh, the jury selection process, I would imagine. No, it would. It wouldn't. Well, it could prolong it, but I think the biggest problem. I mean, um, you probably need one of our friends from the <laughs> defense, but I mean, I think they, uh, you know, in jury selection, obviously they want to get rid of that, um, you know, extremely pro law enforcement juror who sure. might be sitting there, right? And that's not a dismissal for cause, right? The fact that you're very pro law enforcement is not a reason that you can't sit on that particular jury, right? Sure. Uh, you know, on the same side, you know, we, we might want to get rid of somebody, you know, for, you know, some legitimate, you know, you know, anti, you know, government sentiments or whatever. And, um, so, you know, that's, that's, I think, where the problem would lie. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, there was a proposal in Sacramento to uh, cut down the number of um, jury preemptories in, I think, six-month misdemeanors, if I remember right, what they are looking to do. And I know that's been opposed by the defense bar um, because they're concerned about this, this very kind of issue. It sounds like Batson Wheeler might not be absolutely perfect, but it's um, might be as good as as is possible to get. Probably um, where we're going to get. My kind of hope is, you know, that that the the Supreme Court case, the most recent, is 1986, right? And hopefully, you know, over the years, as people become more attuned, um, you know, that kind of behavior will diminish, right? I mean, certainly, sure. you know, I think our deputies have been trained. Um, you know, to look at individuals, right? To always judge the individual, not to judge someone by their, you know, racial makeup or sex or whatever it might be. Sure. Okay. Well, then we'll let you get back to to molding the young minds of our our deputies and providing a a good history lesson here and there too. Uh, Mr. William Woods, thanks so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Again, that was William Woods. 
from the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, speaking about Foster vs. Chapman and the Wheeler-Batson Doctrine generally. Next, we'll get to my conversation with Donald Falk of Mayor Brown. Happy to welcome now Donald Falk from Mayor Brown. Mr. Falk is a partner at the firm and works in the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Department. He filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States of America and the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America in this case. Mr. Falk, welcome to the program. Thank you. So the case we're talking about here is Bristol-Myers Squibb Company versus the Superior Court for the County of San Francisco. There are also an additional group of plaintiffs, original plaintiffs, that are the real parties in interest here. The case is being argued, actually, as we speak, um, recording this on Thursday morning. I believe the issue here is whether or not the original plaintiffs in the case who were non, uh, not residents of California, but filed this case in California Superior Court, whether they showed the court could exercise personal jurisdiction over the original defendant here, Bristol Myers Squibb. But before we get to the case in front of the state high court, let's back up a bit and set up the, the factual background and the underlying procedural posture. So walk me through what's going on here. There's essentially three important parties to have in mind, right? There's the original defendant, the petitioner now, the Bristol Myers Squibb, and then a group of resident plaintiffs in the original action, and then the real parties in interest here, a larger group of non-resident plaintiffs. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, this this case was is basically a an example of uh, joinder run wild. What we what we have is a a small number, several dozen California plaintiffs who were allegedly injured in California, bought the drug in California, took it in California, but. But to them have been added hundreds, and my understanding is now it's into the thousands of out-of-state plaintiffs who did not buy, take, or otherwise have any interaction with the, the drug in California. They you know, bought it in other states and live in other states, and everything relevant to their individual cases occurred in other states. But the plaintiff's lawyers are trying to get them into the San Francisco Superior Court. Right. And it's the claims here before the California Supreme Court, specifically of the, the out-of-state plaintiffs that are at issue, right? The, the matter as to the resident right. plaintiffs has sort of been put to the side or settled already. Yeah, there's no dispute that California has specific jurisdiction over Bristol-Myers to adjudicate the claims of the California resident plaintiffs. The real parties in interest are what at the time were the hundreds of out-of-state plaintiffs that had been um, brought in through joinder to the San Francisco Superior Court case. This group of plaintiffs, both from in-state and out-of-state, they bring claims in San Francisco Superior Court, and Bristol-Myers Squibb moves to to quash the service of summons as to the, the out-of-state plaintiffs. And, and what did the trial court rule? Well, originally the trial court asserted jurisdiction on the theory that there would be general jurisdiction over any defendant who engaged in systematic and continuous business activities in California, which was not an uncommon theory at the time in state and federal courts of appeals. That's when Bristol-Myers petitioned for a writ of mandate to the First District Court of Appeal. Right, and that was denied, right? That, that was summarily denied. And then in the meantime, the Supreme Court of the United States decided the 
Daimler versus Spalman case. Right. The petition had been brought on a decision of a few years before in 2011, the Goodyear Dunlop Tires case versus Brown, which clarified uh, general jurisdiction to a significant extent, uh, but not as much as Daimler, which in 2014 basically uh, set forth some very, very clear rules about the limitations on general jurisdiction. Such as? Well, uh, what the Daimler court said is that general jurisdiction is available only where a company is at home, which is going to mean in the great bulk of cases, either the uh, state of incorporation or the principal place of business. Now, they said there may be um, some exceptions. Uh, there may be some unusual circumstances, and there they cited a case from the uh, World War II era where a Philippines company had essentially relocated to Ohio for the duration of the war after the Japanese invasion. And so uh, although their technical principal place of business and incorporation was, was not there in Ohio, uh, everything was really happening on Ohio in the, in the, during the period at issue. Uh, but, but it would have to be something like that where there was a, a different uh, the nominal principal place of business wasn't really where things were happening. What the court did, it was reject the Ninth Circuit's use of uh, a test that is essentially identical to the test applied by the Court of Appeal in um, the Bristol-Myers case, which is to say that continuous and systematic um, business activities would be, uh, would be enough. Uh, in, in, in fact, the Daimler Court said very specifically, uh, and I'm quoting here, the exercise of general jurisdiction in every state in which a corporation engages in a substantial, continuous, and systematic course of business would be unacceptably grasping. Uh, so that seemed to be a direct uh, repudiation of the theory applied by the Court of Appeal, I'm sorry, by the Superior Court in this case, and adopted uh, the let's stand by the Court of Appeal that, that denied the, the petition for writ of mandate. And as a consequence, when Bristol-Myers petitioned for review to the California Supreme Court in the wake of Daimler, the California Supreme Court granted review and transferred the case back to the first district for consideration on the merits in light of the Daimler decision. Okay, and then we'll jump into the Court of Appeals opinion in just a second. But before we do, um, could you remind me, and I suppose any listeners that might have put this distinction out of their heads after their first year of law school civil procedure exam, um, what are the differences between general personal jurisdiction and specific personal jurisdiction? Well, general jurisdiction means that you can sue the defendant over anything they do. Basically, if, if a court has general jurisdiction over the defendant, it really doesn't matter what the cause of action is and what other contacts there may be with the defendant and the litigation and the plaintiff. In, in your home, your home state, or your home states, if you're a corporation that has to differing principal place of business and, and state of incorporation. Uh, you can be sued over pretty much anything at all. Uh, jurisdiction, at least, is there. Specific jurisdiction requires a nexus 
or relation, depending on what the court is using which words, between the uh, cause of action and the uh, defendant. Uh, you can't sue over absolutely anything, but you can sue over issues that uh, have a sufficient connection with the forum. Obvious examples are you could be selling a product, you could be at home in you know, New York, but selling a product in California, and if someone buys that product in California and is injured by it in California, assuming the product got there by other than random means, uh, the, the, the company is, is going to be subject to jurisdiction, uh, specific jurisdiction. That doesn't mean you can be sued over everything, but you can be sued over your conduct in the state. With that in mind, the Court of Appeal, citing Daimler, agrees with you that general jurisdiction does not apply in this case. But it does hold that the California court could exercise, in this context, specific personal jurisdiction over the defendant. Could you walk me through the court's reasoning? Yeah, as best I can. But the, what the court says is essentially that it is enough of a relation. It doesn't, you don't have to have a relation between the events at issue in an individual case. And recall, these are individual cases that are being joined here. Uh, you don't need to have a relation between those events and the forum state so long as the defendant engaged in activities that have allegedly uh, had similar results with other plaintiffs, other people. Basically, they're saying that if you can be sued by California residents over a product that you market in California, anyone in the country harmed by that same product, even though the product wasn't made in California, wasn't to them, it wasn't sold in California, they weren't hurt in California, they've never been to California, they can still come to California and uh, have jurisdiction over the defendant because the defendant has a certain level of activity in California that was sufficient to subject it to a lawsuit over events that did occur in California. I noticed in the opinion that the Court of Appeal really doesn't draw much distinction between the claims of the residents and the non-residents or make much ado about the fact that some of the plaintiffs are in-state and some are not. They say it doesn't really impact the specific personal jurisdiction analysis. Why is there an important line to be drawn between the resident plaintiffs and the non-resident plaintiffs in this case? Well, they, I think the Court of Appeal uh, missed the, the critical distinction, which is you have specific jurisdiction over the defendant's in-state conduct and the result of in-state conduct or in-state impacts on that conduct. And that conduct here, uh, in-state conduct and in-state results and in-state injuries allegedly occurred to the in-state plaintiffs, but there is no in-state conduct or in-state injury that is applicable to the out-of-state plaintiffs. It is this sort of universal leverage that essentially uh, replaces the rejected general jurisdiction theory with what amounts to a different form of general jurisdiction where the nexus between the in-state conduct and in-state actions and in-state results of the defendant's conduct and actions simply don't exist. These are cases that uh, had these individuals just shown up on their own rather than tried to join California cases, it would have been 
one would hope at least an, uh, an easy task for a court to reject jurisdiction because there, there, there'd just be no connection to California whatsoever, except for the fact that the defendant you know, engaged in activities that in the former test would have subjected it to general jurisdiction. But here, under the Court of Appeals opinion, it, it seems to be that so long as there is one in-state plaintiff, there can be an unlimited number of out-of-state cases with no nexus to California at all that may be brought here and over which the California courts may assert jurisdiction. The connection, the connection has been broken, except that there's an analog and an analogous case dealing with in-state conduct or in-state events. So you, you hint at it there, and you mention it explicitly in your amicus brief that the Court of Appeal, in your opinion, seems to allied the two doctrines a bit of general and specific jurisdiction or uh, applies a, a hybrid mix of the doctrine to reach their result. What, what do you mean by that, that hybrid mix of general and specific? Well, what the court is doing is is basically saying that if there is specific jurisdiction over a California case, there is specific jurisdiction over, you know, a Utah case or a Virginia case, it, which is basically the same as general jurisdiction. I mean, it, depending on how you read it, the court of appeal opinion, either the presence of a California plaintiff is irrelevant, in which case it is truly general jurisdiction because you're just asserting jurisdiction based on the business activities in the state and saying those activities, although they don't relate to the particular injury at issue, they're the same kinds of activities that occurred out of state and do relate to the out of state injury. And that's enough, which sounds uh, either like a metaphysical version of specific jurisdiction or what it really is, is general jurisdiction and specific jurisdictions clothing. Or, uh, you say that, well, what matters is that there is a, at least a single California plaintiff. And once you have analogous lawsuits, you have these, uh, you have the benefit of judicial economy, which is to say that California can serve as the uh, forum, our overcrowded courts can serve as the forum for anyone in the country who has a case that is similar to one properly brought in California and raises similar issues, uh, in which case, Again, the distinction between general and personal jurisdiction, I mean, sorry, general and specific jurisdiction is no greater than, um, than the, the fact that there is an in-state plaintiff. Uh, and, and that maybe is the, is, is the fulcrum. Maybe, maybe if, if their theory requires the in-state plaintiff, which I, I think it does, I think it's a joinder issue here, and you have to have something to join it to. Uh, but if you require the in-state plaintiff, you're basically saying, well, as long as there's one in-state plaintiff, then you essentially have general jurisdiction, which in, in the case of a mass market product or, or, or advertising or other types of, of mass conduct gets you to exactly the same place as the rejected theory, the theory that was rejected in Diamond. Okay, let me push back a little bit and ask you to draw a distinction for me. The Court of Appeals relies a bit on a U.S. Supreme Court case, Keaton v. Hustler Magazine, which ostensibly seems to have a somewhat similar factual background in that there's an out-of-state plaintiff that sues an out-of-state defendant. The defendant there is Hustler Magazine over, I believe, it was slander or libel claims in New Hampshire court. So out-of-state defendant and plaintiff and there was jurisdiction there. What, what is the difference between that case and the one here? 
Well, the difference is in that in that type of case, in a, in a libel case, uh, you are injured in every state in which the libel is, is spread. And so if you are uh, a person whose reputation is harmed by a publication and the publication takes place in New Hampshire, you're harmed in New Hampshire, and there accordingly is specific jurisdiction over that claim. Here, there is no assertion, nor could there be, that the out-of-state residents are harmed in any way in California. Uh, there, there is no nexus whatsoever. Um, it is not the sort of claim like libel where you are harmed anywhere a publication is made. When you have a personal injury claim, you're harmed where you are. And there may be other relevant conduct that takes place in a forum, but there was not, in these cases, there was no relevant conduct by Bristol-Myers that took place in California. What the Court of Appeals said is there was analogous conduct that took place and hurt other people, and or allegedly hurt other people. And if you have that allegation that you engaged in similar conduct, in-state conduct that hurt different people, the California courts therefore may assert nationwide jurisdiction over anyone bringing a similar claim based on a product that is also marketed in California. Okay, let me push back on one other point. The Court of Appeal makes a policy argument relating to judicial efficiency and says essentially that these claims by the the non-resident plaintiffs and the in-state plaintiffs are essentially alleging that the same harm, they're very similar claims. If they aren't brought here, if they aren't joined into this one lawsuit, they can be brought in other courts, but they might be brought in, in various and different in several courts and clog up multiple court dockets. What What's so bad about having them decided these claims, these very similar claims, decided once and for all in this one court with the in-state defendants who rightly brought an action? Well, but what's wrong with it is that California doesn't have the power to do that, and California courts don't have the power to do that any more than if, if you were... Uh, senior California resident, and if, if you got in an accident in Utah, the New Jersey courts would have no power to hold you to account there over that accident in Utah, and simply because a Utah plaintiff decided those courts were more favorable. There simply isn't this kind of extraterritorial power lodged in the state courts, or for that matter, in, in, in the federal courts. You don't have the governmental power to assert your jurisdiction over the entire nation's worth of claims. And that's a, basically a fundamental uh, principle that has uh, undergirded the United States since its founding. You may have power to assert jurisdiction over someone that is out of state based on some connection between the claim and the jurisdiction, but the connection can't be that there's just a similar claim here brought by somebody else. And the efficiency argument, you always can have efficiency arguments. I mean, it's very, what would be efficient is if we just put them all, all the cases into one bucket and roll the dice. That would be efficient too. That would save even more time and money. But it's not, uh, it, it, it's not consistent with the due process. Sure. I suppose the courts during the, the reign of terror and post-revolutionary France were, were very efficient as well. Um, but not necessarily yeah, in a good way. Of, 
there's lots of, I mean, it's, it's very efficient to bring it, all claims involving all people in the same court. It's, it, 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 it's quite efficient. It just isn't, it's just not where the power, power is allocated here. And we don't have nationwide power lodged in the California courts or any other state court. And indeed, even in the federal district courts, you don't have nationwide power except under, under you know, certain very well-defined and well-coordinated circumstances. Again, again, this is a joinder case where you have what amount to hundreds of individual claims being hooked together, uh, but they remain individual claims. And basically, in my view, the Court of Appeal says it makes a difference under joinder principles, at least, if you have a, a sort of an anchor plaintiff in California, you can bring in the entire country's disputes uh, with the same company over the same product. And that simply far exceeds any similar assertion of jurisdiction that has been upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States and, and frankly, by the California Supreme Court as well has required what it called a substantial nexus between the particular claims and the defendant's in-state activities. And here there isn't, there's a parallel, there's not a nexus, there's just a parallel, but parallel lines don't meet. Sure, then I'll wrap up with one last one. The, the trial court and the court of appeal both cited against Bristol-Myers Squibb in this action. Best guess, how do you see the Supreme Court coming down? Well, it's always hard to make a guess, but I, sure. you know, I, I don't think there will be any votes for general jurisdiction, even though the courts required the parties to address that as well. I think the Daimler had, rejected the exact same theory. Uh, for specific jurisdiction, I also think they will reverse. I don't have any idea whether it will be unanimous or whether there will be uh, uh, dissents. But I think ultimately the California Supreme Court will look at this and say, Yes, of course, we have jurisdiction over the 80 in-state cases, but uh, unless there is something, and here there is nothing, there are often smaller connections between uh, conduct and particular plaintiffs, but here there's nothing and there's nothing asserted except that there are analogous cases that are properly in California, and I don't think this jurisdiction by analogy is going to fly with the majority of the court. Well, we'll find out soon enough if the California Supreme Court agrees with you. Mr. Donald Falk... I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And with that, the program for June 3rd, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity to once more thank all of my guests, Justice Anthony Klein, William Woods, and Donald Falk. And I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that you can receive CLE credit for your having listened. There should be a link at the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Click on that, complete a short true-false test, and an hour of CLE credit is yours. Once again, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.